We've been asking the question and needing an answer that applies to so many things. Who are you and how did you get here? And we've established that God has said that you are one who bears his image and you are a special creation of God, the pinnacle of his creation. And as we already quoted in Genesis 1.27, the Bible says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Tonight I'd like to talk about talk about this. He said he created them male and female. Male and female he created them. So men and women created in the image of God together, men and women reflect the characteristics and qualities of God. Men are dependent on women. Women are dependent on men in every biological sense, obviously. And of course, the Bible would remind us in terms of even expressing fully the image and qualities of God in this world. Remember now, he created an environment for them, very specifically a garden named Eden that he put them in to work. And he said to them, as he blessed them, everything was set up. He said, this is good, this is good, this is good. This is not good for man to be alone. I'm going to create a partner, a helper that will be a perfect complement to him. And so he said then to him in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. He said that to them. Fill the earth and subdue it. So we've got a garden. Think about this now. God creates uh, an image of himself, but he doesn't create an image of himself just in one gender, in one form. He creates an image of himself in expressing his glory in the earth in two different genders. Of course, he said to be fruitful and multiply, which is to have children. And all of them were going to be workers. We're going to talk about that this week. God has created us to exercise dominion. So when you think about men and women, certainly this is a hot topic in our culture today. People are very confused about what that is. Uh, we need to know this is not just some archaic book in the Old Testament that speaks to these issues. Christ himself, who rose from the dead, did miracles in Galilee and in Jerusalem. He was the one who echoes the same and says you ought to be reading very carefully the book of Genesis. He answered people asking him about marriage. He said, have you not read? And this is, of course, a question that they should answer. Well, yes, we've read it. Well, he said, well, you don't seem to understand it. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning didn't just make one gender, he made two, and only two. He made them male and female. And then he went on to say, that's why we have the ability to have families. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and he said to them now, be fruitful and multiply. So this is about creating families on earth, expressing that creative process of bringing new human beings into the world through two distinct genders, male and female shall be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. I'm not again quoting Genesis 1, now I'm quoting Genesis 9, where God says again after the flood, you guys need to have children, create families, have more human beings that reflect my glory in this world. Genesis 35, God said to him, I am the mighty God, be fruitful and multiply, he says to Abraham. And that's going to bring great hope to the world, that a nation and a company of nations shall come from you through your descendants, and kings shall come from your body. Deuteronomy 28, blessed shall you be in the city, right? Building big communities of individuals that reflect God's image. 
Blessed shall you be in the field, just like the animals are going to reproduce, human beings are going to reproduce. Blessed be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle. Jeremiah 29, he continues to tell them, this is so many years later after Moses, he says to them, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. We need to continue to multiply individuals on the face of the earth. This was not a command just for the beginning in the garden because it was quiet and, and, and there was not a lot of people. So God wanted them to get enough people going to where it would be just a, a, a manageable number there in the early world. He said, this is to continue on. Jeremiah is writing in the 5th century BC creation many, many years before that. All throughout the Bible, it says when you have children, that's a good thing. They're a heritage from the Lord. The Lord gives these children to men and women who create these children by God's grace and power, and blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And Between these two verses in verse 4, it speaks of, of children like arrows that you are launching into the world. You have children, they go out, they live beyond you, they have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We fill the earth, we multiply, we increase. The population explosion that some of the environmentalists are very concerned about is exactly what God asked us to do, to have children. Even in the end of the whole picture of what's coming in the millennial kingdom for Israel, he again repeats it, I will multiply people on you, and cities are going to be inhabited, new cities, you're going to have to build new cities and new communities, and suburbs are going to spring up, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and you shall multiply and be fruitful. America has been particularly blessed in many ways in the past, all the problems and mistakes and sins and transgressions, there were many things that held as a primary focus when people understood what they were called to be under an understanding of what God's Word had taught. And so it was very important in years gone by, and I'm thinking about 60, 70 years ago, when you had everyone thinking from the very beginning about growing up, moving out, getting married. Yesteryear was filled with a high value on marriage. Today, not so much. Let me give you some statistics. 84% right, of adults, now 18 years and older, I mean 18 years and older, in just the middle class, suburban people, people that worked in factories, 84% of the middle class were married if they were 18 years or older. right? And that includes all those that may be uh, uh, widowers or widowed later in their life or the elderly or even you know the 18, 19-year-olds, 84%. What do you think that stat is today for the same period of life, 18 till death, and in the middle class, the people that live in suburbia, that work in the factories, not the elite or the governmental leaders. Uh, that's a complete turnaround. Now only 48%, less than half the people that are adults in our country that are working class people are married. Marriage is not very important anymore. And those who do get married, they wait a long time to get married. Uh, marriage age in uh, 1960s, 1950s, was the average, was, 50, uh, was men being 22 years old, was the average age for them to get married. Women, the average age for them to get married, I'm talking about the average age, was 20 years old. Uh, and if you wonder if God approves of that kind of thing, you just got to look back on the Bible and see that God chose Mary to bear Jesus, and he didn't pick a 35-year-old woman. He picked a very young woman. We don't know how old, but she was probably in her late teens. I'm talking about America, 22 and 20. 
age of weddings today and people getting married, the average age for men is 33. The average age for women is 32. We've added 11 years to men, 12 years to women. They're waiting very long into their adult life to do this, if they do it at all. Children born to unmarried parents, people that were having sex outside of marriage and bearing children, children that were born to unwed mothers back in the day was 4% back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, born today without married parents, you know what I mean by this, right? They have not been married. They just happen to have sex outside of marriage and have children. That number is 41% in our culture today. And that's the ones that can survive the abortionist tools and don't get sucked down a sink in some abortionist clinic. 35-year-old man that's not married, if you were to say, look at all these men out here in, in the culture, let's pick just the 35-year-olds, how many of them are not married back in the day? 7%. How about today? 35-year-old men, if you just picked a slice of society, 35-year-old men, how many are not married? 26%. The stats are absolutely incredible when it comes to marriages dissolving. Uh, the divorce rate uh, was rare, so rare in some segments, particularly in the 50s, and early 60s, it was uh, almost unheard of. It's hard for someone to know someone who was divorced. And the stats are varied, but very, very low today. It's very common. Uh, matter of fact, there's probably people in this room that are working with step-parents and know all kinds of people, if not your own parents, but know uh, family members, uncles, aunts, cousins, etc., that are divorced. And yet God was very clear about what he wanted. He wanted families. He wanted male and females to join together in something called a holy matrimony in the covenant of marriage. He wanted them to have children. And then he said, I don't want them to be considered two people. I want them to be considered one. And what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, God can choose to separate husband and wife at death, and that's what we say at a wedding ceremony, until separated by death. But until then, we have those men and women who join together in the covenant of marriage as a lifelong commitment. And of course, as we've seen, you're to be fruitful and multiply, not just add, you should multiply. That means you should be having children that multiply how many people might live in your particular community because you're having children. And back then, very common, of course, we had big families. We had lots of, of, of kids in most homes. Uh, today, we got bigger houses. We got more rooms. We got bigger closet space, but we have a whole lot less children. The average number of children back in the 50s was five. The average family would have five kids. The average number of children today in America is less than two. We're at about 1.9, 1.8 in terms of the average. And in some countries, it's all the way down to one. Now think about that. If you have two people in a country that have one child, you are going to, in in a matter of no time, you don't need to know math very well to know that entire society is going to, uh, attribute down to to nothing. In the old days, you had uh, people having children, and of course, if they're going to have all these children, they were going to start young. The wife, the average wife who's married is going to be a mom in 1970. She had her first child at age 21. Uh, Wives today that have their first child is somewhere, depending on the stats you read, between 27 years old and 30 years old. And uh, in some countries, in Europe in particular, it's even older than that. I want you to think about that. Think about families that would start young, they would be married, they would have children, they would raise a family that was important to them. Today, most people have a cat or a dog uh, or a bird, and they say, well, we're good, we're good to go. Uh, Maybe if we're going to have kids, we'll have them later. We're just going to enjoy life now. You need to know that God has built us as human beings, male and female, to have children and to have them 
young, the risk of a baby with a serious birth defect based on the age of the mother. Think this through now. If you have a 25-year-old woman that has a baby, she has a 1 in 1,250 person chance of having a baby with a serious birth defect. At age 30, it goes down to 1 in 1,000. That means the odds are going up. If she's 35, it's 1 in 400. If she's 40, it's 1 in 100. If she's 45 and has a child, she has a 1 in 30 chance of having a baby with a birth defect. And if she happens to push it to 49, she's got a 1 in 10 chance that she's going to have a baby with a serious birth defect. To talk about marriage the way Jesus talked about marriage, the way that God talked about marriage in the Bible and having children, the responsibility of raising children, providing for children, getting married, being married to that person for the remainder of your life. There were people that said in Jesus' day what people are saying today. Maybe some of you even. I don't know. You grew up with a home. You think, I don't really care much for seeing what I see in the households around me. Maybe even in your own household. I don't plan on it. Don't have any interest in it. Certainly not talking about it. My parents have never talked to me about it. Uh, I, I, who knows? Maybe I'll just remain single. When Jesus talked in that very same passage I quoted about being joined together until death and having nothing separate you but death, the disciples said, if such is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In other words, not everyone can accept the fact that they're going to be single. Matter of fact, you would think about the reality of Jesus being single, the Apostle Paul being single. Plenty of people in the Bible were single. There was nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, in this passage, he says, hey, it's a certain gift that God gives certain people to be able to go through life as a single person. Now, there are people with no interest in the opposite sex, talking about men here that are eunuchs, people that were, uh, have no interest in, in, in romantic love or sexual encounters with a woman they don't even want to be married. And some have been that way from birth. That's just the way they are wired. And then there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. In other words, back in the day in particular, if you had men that were going to be in an important role in a kingdom, a king might have that person castrated, right? Like you would do to a, a, a dog, right? To spade or neuter an animal so that they couldn't have children. Well, you would do that, take away any interest in romance and sex. And uh, that was done for purposes like, I'm going to have you in charge of my household or my children. You're going to be in charge of, of the wives or servant girls in my, in my palace. And so they would be made that for the sake of protecting the man's household so that that leader in his household did not in any way take advantage of the women in his household. And that was a horrible thing. And yet it was a reality in the ancient world. And he says, oh, some have no interest in marriage because they have been uh, physically made uh, uninterested in it. They've, made, they've been castrated. And then there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. We're not talking about people that have actually done anything physical to themselves, just like those that are born without an interest in romance and marriage and children and all that. But you have some that have decided to do that for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they've got an interest like Jesus did, like Paul did, that said, I'm going to give my life completely and wholly to serving God in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my church. And you know what? I can be fine without this. And he says, if you can be fine without it, you should be fine without it. Let the one who is able to receive this, this truth, Right, the reality of not going through life with this, they ought to receive it. Matter of fact, the default ought to be in your mind, listen, if I can remain single, devote my life to Christ, I can be super useful in the world, in the church, in the mission field, in ministry, 
in doing things, even in my neighborhood to represent Christ there if I don't have a wife and children, if I don't have a husband and kids. You would have more time, you'd have more energy, more effort, more money, all expended on things that God sees as important. Problem is, there's not many that can do that. Now, if you can, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is speaking about his own life here and thinking about other people's, is if you're firmly established in your heart, right, and you want to be single, you're under no necessity, no one's making it that way. Like the Roman Catholic Church says, if you want to be really holy to be a priest, you can't get married. Certain religious systems are that way. Monks and certain orders are that way. And certainly Roman Catholic priests require that. Uh, well, that's not right. And Paul says that's not right. No one should be under necessity not to get married and have children. But if it's that his desire is under control, I don't have the desire to do it. And it's a, it's a well-maintained desire. Well, he'll do well. Right? So then he who marries the one that he likes, the one he's betrothed to, if he's interested in marrying a girl, well, he does well. That's a good thing. Matter of fact, be fruitful, multiply, take a wife. All of those things are good things. But if you refrain from marriage, of course, we're talking here in 1 Corinthians 7 about being fully devoted to the Lord's work, well, you do even better. Matter of fact, some of the most famous Christians in church history that wrote more books, led more people to Christ, preached in more places, did more work for the, for the kingdom, they were single. They were single, and we know their names, and we know what they've done because they produced far more than they could if they were married. So the Bible says it would be better if you could go through life single. I'm not in any way saying you shouldn't in your mind say, well, I know I'm just junior high, high school, or thinking of my future. I don't know if I'll get married or not. You should say, okay, if I can get through life with, with a contentedness, well, that's fine. The problem is most people can't, right? 1 Corinthians 7 says, whoever is firmly established in his heart being under no necessity, having his desire under control, he'd do well, right? But the problem is people don't have their desires under control. Even in the same passage, he says, if they cannot exercise self-control, if they're interested in the opposite sex, if they're thinking of romance, if thinking about physical intimacy, if they think about marriage, well, then they should be married if that's their interest. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. You shouldn't have an interest in this and a gnawing interest, a consistent interest in this as you go through this season of your life and you say, man, this is an interest that I have. And one day I can see myself like the leaders in this room that are married and have kids. I could see myself doing that because I would desire to see my life turn out that way. Well, that's great. That'd be awesome. Speaking of burning passions, there's a lot of passion in our society that doesn't match everything we've said so far. There's a lot of things that are said about your sexuality, about your interest in people romantically that uh, is given to you from the very beginning of your life in our culture. You don't have to go to public schools to hear this. You don't have to read secular novels to, to know this. You certainly don't even need to watch television. Or this is everywhere in our society. And they say you should be able to be whatever you want. Right, a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, you can be asexual, doesn't matter what you are, just you should be proud of whoever you are, whatever your desires are. The Bible's given us two options, right? marriage and family or singleness. And the Bible says you can choose one or the other. If you can choose to be single, be single. Our culture says be whoever you want, do whatever you want. And some people would say, well, those Christians who sit there with their Bibles, why do they care? And why are they keep preaching to me and telling me who I can love? I should be able to love whoever I want. Love wins. Love is love. You hear all these things all the time, every day, every week. And certainly in the month of June, it gets ramped up even more every year. Why should we care? Well, because everything in this society, every city, every organization, every job, every company, every product, every banner, every philosophy is all going to be subject to the judgment of God. 
And the Bible says that he sets the rules. He is the lawgiver and he is the judge. And Jesus said this, the same one who was going around healing people and being compassionate and multiplying loaves and fishes and feeding hungry people. He said, the son of man, speaking of himself, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And he will repay each person according to what he's done. Now, how do I know what to do? Well, he's told us what to do. You can be single. It relates to your gender, right? You can, you can be married. Great. But those are your options. And the Bible doesn't give you any more options than that. Well, I, there's a lot of things in my life that I will get to experience if I don't do what he says. Look at the screen. It says Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. Right? He's going to judge the world. He's going to come back, and everyone's going to be rewarded or punished based on what they do. The verse preceding this, that's right before it, take a look at it. He says, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Right? Gains the whole world. Everyone applauds you for whatever you're doing, whatever you're being, whatever you desire, whoever you love, and they go out there on all the social media, they applaud you and say you're wonderful. If you became famous because you did whatever you wanted to do as it relates to your gender and your attractions, it says, what, what good would that do if everyone in the world held you up as a wonderful hero, so brave, so creative, so thinking out of the box, you're such an amazing person. What would that matter if you forfeited your soul? And at the end of all this, when you stand before Christ, when he comes back, the question would be, what would you give in exchange for your soul? Would being on the cover of a magazine, would that, would that be okay? Would it, how about if you were some, some, some social media influencer? Would, that, would, that, would you exchange your soul for that? And the Bible says you've got to be really careful about what the, what the world is pitching you because one day Jesus is going to come back. He made the rules. He affirmed the rules that were written in the Bible. And Jesus says, I'm going to judge people based on what I told them they can and cannot do. Romans chapter 2, the Bible says you're going to store up for yourself judgment from God. If you choose to do whatever you want without any interest in doing what God tells you to do. In the chapter right before that, he says, you know, there are people that have exchanged the truth about God, the things that he said, the things that he taught for a lie. We saw this in, in night one on Sunday night. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Greek word for yes, that's right. You should think about that. And the idea here is it's not just the creatures like the Bengal tigers and the pandas and koala bears and all the butterflies and the earth and the trees, right? We talked about it in that, ter in that term, those terms on Sunday, but also people loving the creature, whoever it is. Whoever it is, if, I, if, I, if a guy wants to love a guy, if a girl wants to romantically love a girl, well, I, I, I want to bow down to that. I want to be subservient to that. I want to do whatever I want to do. And the Bible says some have exchanged the truth of God for that. And when they choose to do that, they're going to be prideful about their decisions, as they say. Well, the Bible says for that reason, God's going to give them over to their dishonorable passions. Oh, they're not dishonorable. All of the folks that are pro-LGBTQ in, in our world are going to say, well, they're not dishonorable. You keep saying they're dishonorable. They're not dishonorable. Well, Christ gets to decide that, not me. Not me right? God gets to decide that, not me. I don't get to decide any of the rules about romance or sex. I don't get to decide any of that. God has decided it. He has created me in his image, and he said the image of God that is expressed in male and female is designed by God to be joined together in marriage and to have children. Or you can skip all that, be content, not burning with any passion to do otherwise, and serve the Lord with all of your attention, all your money, all your time. But they are dishonorable because God calls them dishonorable. 
And they do things like what they're promoting throughout our society. The women exchange natural relations, which would be with a man, for those that are contrary to nature. Because that's the problem. If the whole point is bringing two component reflections of the glory of God, the image of God, bringing them together to make a family and having the brightest expression of God's glory by having children, right? if that's the picture of God's glory, Right? You, need a, you need a man and you need a woman to do that. A biological man and a biological woman that comes with a gendered culture, which is a culture that is given by God, which is masculinity and femininity. Those are the things that God provides, and those are all a part of the nature that he has created. And what has happened in our society, as was going on in the first century, is people have said, I'm exchanging all that, just like I exchanged the truth of God's commands and who he is to do whatever I feel makes me feel good in creation even if it's prohibited in God's word. Therefore, I'm exchanging my natural function as a man or a woman to not say I'm going to sit this out and just serve the Lord full time, but I'm going to go pursue whatever I want, something that's contrary to nature. Men do the same, of course, and the men likewise. They gave up natural relations with women, and they were consumed with passion for one another. And of course, they're not just sitting around privately feeling these things. They're marching down the streets of every a city in America and around the world um, proclaiming that it's more than desire. It, they're certainly acting on that all the time. Men committing shameless acts with men and in the end, right, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And it's not an error like, oops, not that kind of error. This is an error that they are campaigning for, waving banners about and telling you that you need to not only accept that they do this, but you need to promote this. You need to say, this is good. You need to applaud this. As the passage goes on to say, they not only do these things, right, but they give hearty approval to those who do the same. And they want you to do that. And just like I said about the whole uh, ethnic issues last night, silence is violence. Well, same is for them. If you do not cheer for whatever person's desires might be, See, then you are in some way shaming them, and you then are the bad guy. The Bible says all that's going to be repaid one day when Christ comes back in the glory of his Father with all the angels, and he'll bring judgment on the world. And Jesus proved that by rising from the dead. So it's very simple. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Not to have those romantic relationships with people of the same gender. right? Biological males and females, that's all we got. Together they can make children. Men and men can't make children. Women and women can't make children. You shall not lie with a male as a, 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 a... You shouldn't lie with a male as you would lie with a woman. You shouldn't have that kind of physical encounter. It is an abomination. That means that God is, is saying this is wrong. Even if you don't think it's icky, even if you don't think it's gross, certainly our world has made it clear from your birth that you should not think it's icky or gross. To God, it's, it's, it's repulsive. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what God has said. That's what nature teaches us, and everything that's contrary to that is contrary not only to nature, but to God's truth. So, God says to his people in Israel, you're all doing that in Canaan, but I don't want you doing that in Israel. Do not make for yourself, don't make yourselves unclean before me. Don't make me look at you as an abomination by any of these things. For by all these, the nations that I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land has become unclean, so that I punished its iniquity. And God has, through time, taken nations like ours, nations like Rome, nations like the Old Testament Canaanites, and he's destroyed them in large part because of these sexual passions. Because they said, we don't care what God says, we're going to be proud about breaking the rules of God when it comes to sexuality and romance and marriage and gender. 
We got another aspect of this. When you think about the LGBTQ, right, the T and all this, we've got people, right, who we've known as, as, as Hollywood stars coming out, saying things like, I am fully who I am now. Right? I, 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 I was identifying as a female. I don't identify as a female anymore. Now, your parents are going to have to make a choice about voting for the next governor. He used to look like this, the guy on the ballot. Now he goes around dressed like this. This is the kind of thing that's going on, and if you don't applaud it in our society, then you are the bad guy. Well, what does God say about that? Just even this. Even if, if Bruce Jenner says, well, call me by a female name, and I'm still into women, and I still do what the Bible says in terms of I lie with a woman as a man would lie with a woman, but I, I like to dress up like this. This is my expression of my feminine side. The Bible says a woman should not wear a man's garments, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for whoever does these things. Here's the word he uses about the nations he's driving out. It's an abomination to God. There's no avoiding this. You will be applauded if you do what the culture does. If you come out today on, on your uh, social media and you say, I am a homosexual, although your word for it is gay, right? I'm gay. If you do that, you'd be applauded. You could, who knows, if you're really good at interviewing people, you could be on the cover of magazines. Or you could be a really good musician and all you got to do is throw on a dress, right? And if you can sing well, now all of a sudden you're on the cover of a magazine and you're really hip and really cool. And if you say anything against that, of course, right? You're a hater. We're going to be called a hater for the rest of your life if you're getting ready for the fact that God, who made the rules, is coming back, and Christ then will sit on a throne and judge the nations as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. If you look at this and you're just used to this by now and it does nothing to you anymore, remember God looks at it eternally and says, this is an abomination to me. It's an abomination. Ellen Page, Bruce Jenner, these folks are doing something that looks at God and says, what you say, I don't care, and I'm proud to go on a cover of a magazine and say, I'm doing Well, aren't we all sinners? Yeah. Do you want to get your sin, the worst of your sin, and to have me put it on a magazine and sell it at the supermarket? I bet you're ashamed of your sin. That's what most people are. But when it comes to our culture, the kinds of cultures that God reserves his judgment for and wipes nations out for, he wipes them out for pridefully saying, we're going to do what we want to do. We don't care what you've told us. He's done that in the past, not only with the Canaanites, he did it with the cities of the plains, not far from the Dead Sea. Two of the famous ones that you know are Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the New Testament looks back at that Old Testament scene and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, right? They served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. If uh, covid had turned out to be all that people were afraid it was going to be, and that is that half our nation was going to be wiped out. And some of the fear mongers said even more than that, we're going to have people dying left and right. It shouldn't surprise you because you, you, you sing a, a, a Lee Greenwood song or something and you say, God bless America, or you stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, or you say, one nation under God. I don't understand why God would do this to us. You should not for a second think twice that when our nation collapses, that it's not because God has been very clear about who we're supposed to be, and instead of being ashamed of our sin, not wanting people to hear about our sins, and never wanting it on a magazine cover, you should not be surprised when God punishes, and I mean severely punishes a nation like that. And I know people are going to say, hey, your pastor got up on a stage and said all that. What a hate monger. What a fear monger. I'm not, matter of fact, I would be a hate monger if I didn't tell you that the judgment of God is impending on a group of people that are pride about things, prideful about things they should be ashamed of. Judgment is coming, 
And it's coming if it doesn't come on this country first, as it has on many nations in the past. If it comes when Jesus just comes back and says, I'm done with the whole world, I'm going to judge it. You want to make sure that you're found on the right side of history, which is that even if you have a number of very perverse and unnatural desires that are welling up in you and stoked by a society that's going to feed that in every turn, your job as a Christian is not to say, well, if I were a Christian, I wouldn't have any of those desires. It's for you to go to war and fight those desires. You need to understand that. I don't know if anybody told you this, but the Christian life is hard. Serving Christ is hard. You live in a sinful body with sinful desires and a sinful culture in a sinful world with Satan constantly throwing things in front of you to have you do what he wants you to do, which is absolutely opposite of what God has told you to do. So you're going to have to fight. You've got an opponent. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, just like Jesus said about the disciples as he spoke to Peter. He'd love to take us all out. And I know that applies to all of us because in 1 Peter 5, it says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's always out to take you out. But you've got to fight. You've got to be vigilant. You've got to be alert. And when you have desires in you, whether they're not as uh, um, perverse as abandoning your natural gender function, it may be something like you're, you're envious or you're worried or you're covetous. You always, you're greedy. I don't know what it is, but whatever is in you that is of this world and is passing away the desires that God says you should not follow, then you need to put it to death. I mean, you got to go, go to war with this in your life. Put to death whatever is earthly in you, the Bible says, whether it's sexual immorality, which we're talking about, whether it's the impurity, which goes, harkens back to that word, an abomination, an unclean, something that's unclean, which are a lot of these sexual sins, including men putting on women's clothing and women putting on men's clothing and trying to act like there's some gender that they're not. Passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, which you think just because I always want what other people want, and I thumb through magazines and wish I looked like her, and I look at a sports magazine, I think I wish I was as athletic as him. If Even the jealousy and envy and covetousness of your hearts, you know, she's got this, and that guy's got that cool car, and that she's got a horse, or whatever your thing is, you think, I just always want those things. Even that, he says, is idolatry. What is it? You got you to put it to death. You got to fight this desire. Because you got to remember this, it's on account of things like that. Even if you're a forgiven Christian, you got to remember the wrath of God is coming on the world. And you got to know that's the reason God is mad at the world and is going to judge the world. So on account of those things, God's wrath is coming. You understand this, right? You understand God is going to come back as real as I'm standing here talking to you right now, and he's going to judge you and me, the church, expecting us, even if we're forgiven, to have done what we should have done. And he's going to judge everyone on the covers of magazines, thumbing their nose at God. You understand that, right? And, and if you don't believe it, then I don't know why you're here. As a matter of fact, as soon as you can get out of all this, get out of it. And you can go follow the culture and do what they say. But I would say this, I would hate you if I didn't warn you that you're going to walk right into God's judgment and it will not be temporary. It will be eternal. Well, I had this problem. Well, great. It can be in your past. Just like we talked about last night, whatever you have done, these things, he says to the Colossians, you too once walked, you lived that way when you were living in them, but you're not living in them anymore. You've made a decision not to. And God is there to invade your heart, to invade your life, to empower you to fight the good fight of faith. But you're going to fight it till the very end of your life, right? The apostle Paul, at the end of his life, second Timothy said, I have fought the good fight. It is a fight. It is a battle. 
And it's a battle with a lot of stuff that's going on inside of you. To get weary of the fight, by the way, as long as we're talking about the image of God, let me say a few other things. You are God's representation in the world. God is a, a, a dynamic, powerful, almighty God. Right? You're not that, but you're a reflection of that. One of the things he's done for you is given you the ability to make decisions, and that's a powerful thing. And God has entrusted that to you. You are a decision-making person. You can make decisions. And it may be that you had passions and desires in your life that have taken you down, and you've indulged in stuff you know is sin, and you know it's wrong. And I'm telling you right now, because you are made in the image of God, it's time to get back up. Time for you to say, yeah, I've been beat up in this fight and I gave up a lot of rounds and my defenses were down. Well, I would say this, you need to know that even if you were beat really badly, even if everything that Satan has has been thrown at you, you can say like, like this, if you're a real Christian, hey, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Hey, we're perplexed. There are things we think, I don't even understand how I'm going to work through this. I don't get it, but we're not driven to despair. Right? You've got to remember these things. We're persecuted. The world's going to hate you because you're going to tell the truth about things that will change their lives if they were to follow it. They don't think that they can change. They don't want to change. They're telling you to shut up, and they're going to persecute you for telling them that they're wrong. But even as a persecuted person, if you're a Christian, you're not forsaken. You can get struck down, but you've got to know as a Christian, because you're made in the image of God, and if you're indeed a real follower of Christ, you're not destroyed, and you won't be destroyed. Matter of fact, Jesus lived this way. We always carry around in the body, right? The body, right? In the body, the death of Jesus. Jesus was afflicted. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was hated. They sought to kill him. We carry that around in us, not only on the outside of our lives, but on the inside of our lives because of the desires that are not in keeping with God's rules. And all of that is going on in this world, and God has kept us here for a good reason. We've got a mission to, to accomplish as Christians. But if we make any progress in that, it's because the life of Jesus is being manifested through us. We can beat these things. God can get us off the mat. You can stumble last week, but get up this week. You can stumble tomorrow and get up, and you keep fighting this. We who live as Christians in this world, we're always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. I don't know if your parents taught you that about Christianity, if you grew up in a Christian home, but this is a hard life. This is a battle. This is going to be a struggle. We are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested even in our fallen mortal flesh. Paul was very honest about these things with his friends. He said, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia as he traveled around as a missionary. He said, it's been bad. Matter of fact, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Here's one thing, by the way, I'll be accused of. You got in front of all those teenagers and told them that uh, you know, uh, bisexuality, transgenderism, uh, uh, all this uh, homosexuality, that it's wrong and it's sin and, and that, that God's going to judge it. Wow, you're going to drive them to despair of life. I understand that. I get that. We're going to have times where we're going to feel like I don't, I'm at war with myself and these desires. He said, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We just can't go on anymore. But that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God. Here's the thing. If you believe the truth of God, God raises the dead. He can change and turn around the things that are going on in your life and the battles in your life that you've been losing for the past five months, six months, five days. 
He can raise the dead. He can change you from the inside out. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril. We wanted to die. We didn't think we could keep going. We felt so defeated, and he will deliver us. On him, we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. If you're a Christian, you've got to think that way. I don't care what your temptations are. I don't care what you did last week. I don't care if you, if you admit to your, your, your leader some of the worst and ugliest sins possible for a teenager. It's time for you to realize that real Christians say, we can get beat up, but we're getting up. We're going to turn this thing around. Wow, you said, all oh, that's wrong. Those are my desires. I got same-sex attraction. But listen, I understand there's a problem in our culture. Over 6,000 suicides per year for teenagers, right, 15 to 24, this young segment that you're a part of. It's the second leading cause of death for your age group, people killing themselves. And I'll bet, right, I, I'm, in, I'm up with the news here in South County. I know people in these schools around here, all the way down to the elementary school over here, killing themselves in the playground. I understand you probably know people, you know stories, you know someone who knows someone. Maybe you know someone in your family that has killed themselves. But I'm just telling you this, that is not the answer. and It's not the answer for Christians. And here's one reason, by the way, you should be afraid to ever, ever consider ending your life. Here's what the Bible says. He gives us the first 10 rules he ever gave hum hum humans. On, the, on Mount Sinai, he brought the rules down. Do you know number six, right? You shall not murder. Well, okay, I'm not thinking of murder. If I said, I'm thinking of killing your sister, I'm thinking about it almost every day how I can kill your sister. You'd say, I don't think my pastor should be thinking about that. No, I'm thinking about how to kill her. I'm thinking about it. I really hate her. I can't stand her. I don't like the way she looks. I don't like how she acts. I want to kill your sister. You'd say something. You need to fix that. Well, I just don't like her. You'd say, well, you shouldn't think that because it's sin. Matter of fact, it's a huge sin. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. Well, it's no different if you're thinking of self-murder. You understand that? If anyone you know is considering self-murder, they're considering murder. If I said, I know someone who wants to kill me, I think you'd say, wow, we need to figure out who that is and get him to stop. You need to never, ever contemplate this because you're despairing about some battle in your heart, some desire that you're conflicted with. This is how serious it was in the book of Genesis. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. If you die, someone spills your blood, I'm going to require a reckoning. There's going to have to be an accounting for this. Matter of fact, from every beast, I'll require it, right? Just like in, in the Old Testament law, if an ox, an animal got out and gored your teenager and they died, God said, we'd kill the ox. As a matter of fact, we might even hold the owners responsible based on whether or not they were negligent in letting this ox out. That's how serious it is if someone is murdered or killed, in that case, manslaughter by a beast, or I'm going to require it of a man. I mean, if a man chooses to kill you, man, they're in huge trouble with me. From his fellow man, I don't care who he is, I don't care who murders you, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Matter of fact, he's going to have to be executed. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because he's made man, God has, in his own image. You do not kill a representation of God. You don't kill the image of God. I don't care how much you might hate yourself. You can't do it. I mean, we looked at this last night and said, well, yeah, no one should be killed because their nose is too wide, right? I mean, I, those guys are evil, those, the Third Reich, right? When they talked about people because they couldn't walk and they were in wheelchairs and they wanted to kill them and they did kill them. They killed thousands and tens of thousands of handicapped people. Well, they're evil, those Nazis. 
Oh yeah, and you even got me thinking about the abortion clinics. All those people killing those innocent children, that's a bad thing. But when you're sitting there contemplating whether or not you want to end your own life, you understand you're doing the same exact thing. I don't care, that is not an option. That is not an option because you're going to be in big trouble. Well, my blood will already be spilled. So how, how can God take a reckoning of my blood? Trust me, you don't want to do it because real life starts after we're gone. You do not want to mess with God's rule regarding killing someone made in the image of God. And guess what? I don't care what you see when you look in the mirror. I don't care how bad you feel about the conflicting desires in your heart. I don't care how shameful your sin is. This is completely off limits. Well, I'm feeling really bad. Well, Paul said we were inflicted at every turn. We had fighting and, and conflict on the outside and fears inside. I had all kinds of things. I was ashamed. I had conflict. But God who comforts the, the downcast. God who takes people that feel awful like they want to end their lives. God comforted us by, here's what the Bible says, the coming of Titus, a person. I've dealt with a lot of suicide, having been a pastor for 30 plus years. I've had to sit there and deal with families when someone has put a bullet in their head. I've had to deal with families when someone hung themselves in the garage, overdosed on pills. I've had to deal with all the aftermaths of, of people killing themselves. And you know what those people didn't do? They didn't avail themselves to the comfort of God. And the comfort of God doesn't come by you sitting on a rock and spinning in your own mind about how awful your life is and maybe God will somehow just cheer me up magically. God uses people. Paul was a whole lot smarter than Titus. Paul was a whole lot more powerful and authoritative than Titus. Paul was the big gun. And he wanted to kill himself. He was down. And he says, you know, God, I trust in God. I put my hope in God. That's what he said in 2 Corinthians 1. And 2 Corinthians 7 says, and God did his work, and here's how he did it. He got me together with people, God's people. Made in the image of God, reflected in male and female. To have children, to build families, to not reflect the values of our culture in making this something you do when you're 35, and maybe you'll have one kid and a cat. This is about you doing what the Bible says. Or if you can live comfortably without it, live without it. Great. But you reflect the glory of God, and that cannot be done however you'd like. If you're a man, you're a man. If you're a woman, you're a woman. You can't blur those lines. And if ever, because of something, whether it has to do with those desires or anything else, you're despairing of life, the answer is God's people. Open your mouth, get with God's people, share your problems and your struggles, and we get through this without taking anybody's life, including your own. Because we have hope. When we get knocked down, we get back up. And if you ever expected the Christian life not to be a conflict, then someone lied to you. It's going to be a conflict. We're going to succeed. We're going to get through this. I trust that you'll do this, believing, following, and obeying what God has said. Let's pray. God, help us, please, to be very careful about what you've said in your word. Let us obey it when our favorite uh, musician, our favorite athlete, our favorite uh, celebrity, entertainment star says the very opposite of what you say. Help us to show that our loyalty is not with this world or anyone in it, our loyalty is ultimately to you, to obey you. So God, we're going to obey you even if it's hard, even if it disappoints us, even if it's not what we want. 
even if we have to fight our own desires, we're going to choose to follow you. God, we know we need your help to do that. You have to empower us. You have to work in us. You do that first and foremost by flooding our lives with you and then putting other Christians in our lives that we reach out to and make sure we get together with to strengthen us and build us up. Thanks for our small group times. Thanks for the leaders in this room. Thanks for the investment of other friends in our lives. And I pray, God, we would deepen our relationship with each other, knowing that that helps us find the comfort and strength that comes from you. In Jesus' name, amen.